just for the for the sake of the recorder, just we're doing now our second and um, four sessions on the Heart Sutra, and it's the uh, it's the winter equinox, uh, winter solstice, 21st of of uh, June 2020. So just first to start, I'll just read out the lines we're going to endeavour to cover today. Um, so last week we did um, the Bodhisattva of Compassion from the depths of Prajna Wisdom saw the emptiness of all five skandhas and sundered the bonds that cause all suffering. So the next bit goes as follows. Know then, form here is only emptiness, emptiness only form. Form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. Feeling, thought and choice, consciousness itself are the same as this. Dharmas here are empty, all are the primal void. None are born or dying, nor are they stained or pure, nor do they wax or wane. So in emptiness, no form, no feeling, thought or choice, nor is there consciousness. So that's a, we're going to just try and get that bit as far as that part today. Um, <clears throat> but before we do, just as a kind of review of last time, It says in those first four lines that um, the, the Bodhisattva sees into the emptiness of the five skandhas, that which is basically the body and the mind, the elements that make up the body and the mind, and that she, because of that, frees herself from the bonds of suffering. So why, what, what would free her from the bonds of suffering? because she's seen into the emptiness of the, the body and the mind. What is it that changes that frees her from suffering? Consciousness. Consciousness? Yeah. Enlightenment. She, it, it, I mean, that's, it, it's enlightenment that she experiences on, on, on seeing into the emptiness of the five skandhas. But what would she, why would her bonds be broken at that point? What would change in her relationship to the five skandhas? Because there's nothing in them. There's nothing there. <coughs> so there's nothing in them. So what would she not be doing? Grasping the attachments. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's the that's where the the bond breaking happens. Is is no longer attaching to those five skandhas. No longer attaching to the body and the different ways of. Um, of um, uh, expressing the mind. So we'll come back to this this point at the end of this session, um, <coughs> hopefully, if we have time. <coughs> so um, just to go through it bit by bit, know then. This is this is the f the um, the first line of our section here. And so in the f in the the first four lines, we'd been it's something's being described to us. Somebody pass me a tissue. Oh, Promise sure. you, I haven't got COVID. Just a box. This one's good. It's going to be a sad one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, just for people who weren't here last time, so it's Avalokiteshvara. She's the most revered of all the bodhisattvas in Buddhism. She's the bodhisattva of compassion. Her name means hearer of the cries of the world. And so now she's the one talking. We're no longer having a description of her experience, but she's actually reporting 
on in describing her experience of reality from the depths of Prajna wisdom, as those first four lines say. So we've moved from the third person to description to first person reporting. Now there's a bit missing from our translation here that in the original, and this happens twice in the sutra, um, she talks, she names the person she's actually talking to, and it's um, it's, it's Shariputra. Do people know who Shariputra was? Because this is very um, sort of important to the us fully understanding. Yes, the, the most, the, probably the most prominent monk in the uh, the time of Shakyamuni. He was one of the ten, ten uh, most prominent monks, and he was known particularly for being foremost in wisdom. So you can see immediate link here with with our Prajnaparamita Sutra. Um, and he was also known for his ability to listen, which which helps him relate very closely to Avalokiteshvara, who. Whose, whose name means hearer of the cries of the world. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh translates this line, listen, Shariputra, or in other translations, it, it's hear, Shariputra. We'll say more about that in a minute. So the question comes up, as we asked about why the Bodhisattva of Compassion, why is Shariputra the one in this sutra, who's being spoken to. In lots of the other um, Mahayana sutras, um, the disciple often presenting the teachings is Subhuti. He um, comes up a lot. And he was, was known particularly for being foremost in loving kindness. Um, but here we have Shariputra. And it gets kind of complicated here, but we'll try to just simplify it. Um, Red Pine, who's one of the translators I have in my pile of different translations here, um, he notes that the way that the subjects of the sutra are sequenced, the order that they appear in, um, is exactly the same as the order of topics in a, um, a, a scripture in the Abhidharma, which are the, the commentaries on the sutras. It's called the Samyukt Agama, and it's attributed to Shariputra, and it's part of the Sarvastivadin school of Buddhism that was active right around the time when the Heart Sutra was, was written. And um, it's one of the most important texts of this particular um, grouping in, within Buddhism. And the order of the, the topics in that sutra and in our sutra in, are the five skandhas, the twelve abodes of sensation, the eighteen elements of perception, the twelve links of dependent origination, the four noble truths, and the attainment and status of practitioners who follow the path. So it's quite a long list, and yet we all of them get crammed in to the the sutra in very succinct way, but they sort of unfold, sort of little bit like sort of origami that is stored flat, and then you kind of just unfold them in little, and you get a whole lot of stuff coming from the from one short reference. Um, so we can understand the Heart Sutra historically as having been a um, 
a corrective to the commentaries of the school of, of, of classical Buddhism. And what that school did particularly was it, it systematized what was not systematized within the actual Buddhist teaching and provided commentaries and sort of linked things together in different ways. And just this is what Red Pine says about this. While he was on earth, the Buddha taught lessons suited to whatever audience he was addressing. But much like a doctor, his instructions were primarily intended to put an end to suffering. He never bothered trying to explain the system that formed the basis of his spiritual pharmacology, which was the Abhidhamma. As later disciples and their disciples came to understand the Abhidhamma, they claimed that it explained reality as a matrix of dharmas, or fundamental entities of the mind, much like the table of atomic elements that is used in chemistry. From such a perspective, our familiar world of objects and persons was viewed as nothing but a conceptual construct fashioned out of dozens of these dharmas, 75 in the case of the Sarvastivadins. And to know things as they really are, a person needed to develop the ability to know the characteristics and connections among these entities. In his sermons, however, the Buddha nowhere advanced such a system, for it was simply too vast an enterprise to attempt on earth. And then the um, story goes that he only uh, taught the Abhidharma once, and it was when he went to visit his mother, who had died at ten, uh, a week after her, his birth, and she'd gone to the, the heaven of the 33, the highest of the, of the heavens, and she, he went there one rains retreat for the whole of the rains retreat and taught his mother the Abhidhamma, which was too complex and too subtle to be taught on earth, in the, in the, in this, which is too grosser a kind of environment. So he could only teach it in, in this heaven of the 33. But the legend is that once a day he came down and he'd give Shariputra a kind of summary of it wouldn't get the whole thing, but he'd get a, he'd be the kind of um, um, Coles Knights version. <laughs> <laughs> and and so at the end of that period, um, uh, Shariputra made notes, and this was part, passed down. So it wasn't the whole thing. And um, uh, Red Pine um, has this theory, which I think it's, it's a nice, it's an interesting theory, but I don't know how much it's really can be kind of backed up, that um, the Buddha's mother was reborn as the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. And so he, she is the, in possession of the whole of the Amidabha, Amid, um, the, Abhidhamma. this teaching, um, the Abhidhamma, and, and she's then um, corrects Shariputra's understanding of it, and mm -hmm. that, that correction is the Heart Sutra. Mm -hmm. um, so that sort of that um, it's a teaching. We could say it's a very personal teaching to to Shariputra. Um, just a little bit more from from uh, Red Pine. 
And remember that the, in the original, it, it, it has this iha shariputra. That's what it is in the original Sanskrit. And iha means is the word for here in Sanskrit. <clears throat> the emphatic iha here is often omitted by translations, translators, but is one of the most important words in the sutra. Iha is the Zen master's shout, the poke in the ribs, the cup of tea. Thus, with here, Iha, Avalokiteshvara opens the door to the great path of the Mahayana, right here, right now, in the light of Prajnaparamita. She looks at the skandhas that the Sarvastivadins considered real and sees the absence of anything permanent, anything pure, anything separate, anything complete unto itself. And she conveys her realization to the disciple of the Buddha best known for his analysis of the self-existence of the skandhas. Thus, Avalokiteshvara gives the skandhas a name, the name Shariputra. So, um, that's just, yeah, give you a sense of where this, this whole sutra is coming from. Um, but you could say, really, that, that, um, that we don't have to sort of buy all of that. Um, best way probably for us to read the sutra or to understand and listen to the sutra is to listen to it as if Avalokiteshvara were just talking to us, to each of us, just directly telling us as best she can of her experience um, of deep Prajnaparamita. That admonition in the Old Testament, hero is a, your, your God, the Lord your God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the is, Lord one. Your God is one. Hear, O Israel, so it's it's all in the here. Yeah. And is that H-E-R-E or is it H-E-A-R? Can you guys online hear when somebody makes a comment? Yes? Okay, good. Okay, so now to our next next um, two lines. Um, so, so we've got know then, and then form here is only emptiness, emptiness only form. So this is the kernel, this is the teaching that's at the heart of Zen, all Zen trainings and practice. Um, let me just read a little bit of, from Master Sheng Yin. So this is in relation to the first line here. Form here is only emptiness. So he's talking about the emptiness of form. Form is emptiness because it does not exist in a definite, enduring location, nor does it have an enduring shape or appearance. Forms, whether atoms or planets, interdependently exist and interact with all other forms. This is the only way we can know of their existence. <coughs> if something had an eternal, 
unchanging, independent nature, it would never react with anything else, and hence we would never become aware of its existence. So there's a, there's a real sense in that unless we were, were permeable, unless we were, um, if, if we weren't permeable or if, or if the forms around us weren't this way, then we couldn't experience them. There couldn't be any kind of interaction. There couldn't be any kind of relationship because the absolute posits um, something completely separate, something that doesn't uh, relate. And so um, uh, this, this, this emptiness, this lack of self, of a fixed self, is at the heart of being alive. Um, I keep going back to, to Thich Han within all of this because he can, managed to express it, express it um, so clearly and, and um, understandably. Because form is emptiness, form is possible. In form we find everything else, feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness. These are the other four skandhas. Emptiness means empty of a separate self. It is full of everything, full of life. The word emptiness should not scare us. It is a wonderful word. To be empty does not mean non-existent. If a sheet of paper is not empty, how could the sunshine, the logger, and the forest come into it? This is from the, the this way of describing into being that we talked about last week. How could it be a sheet of paper? The cup, in order to be empty, has to be there. Form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness, in order to be empty of a separate self, have to be there. Emptiness is the ground of everything. Thanks to emptiness, everything is possible. That is a declaration made by Nagarjuna, the Buddhist philosopher of the second century, who was um, credited with having brought all the Mahayana scriptures into um, play at that time. They were said to have been handed down to him by the Nagas. These are these... Um, dragon deities that live deep inside the earth. So these, these, these living kind of godlike beings who are at the, at the depths of um, the world, deep, deep under, the, under the earth. So from coming from, you could say, coming from our unconscious, collective unconscious. <clears throat> emptiness is the ground of everything. Thanks to emptiness, everything is possible. That is a declaration made by Nagarjuna, the Buddhist philosopher of the second century. Emptiness is quite an optimistic concept. If I am not empty, I cannot be here. And if you are not empty, you cannot be here. Because you are there, I can be here. This is the true meaning of emptiness. Form does not have a separate existence. Avalokita wants us to understand this point. If we are not empty, we can become the block of matter. We cannot breathe, we cannot think. To be empty means to be alive, to breathe in and to breathe out. We cannot be alive if we are not empty. Emptiness is impermanence, it is change. 
We should not complain about impermanence because without impermanence nothing is possible. And go on, but and it gives the it gives the sense of the kind of emptiness we're talking about. Something dynamic, something um, flowing. Something is it similar to potential? So it without and if you didn't have potential you can you, you can evolve and improve. And that potential is like that emptiness. Is that is that you couldn't have potential if you weren't empty because you'd be completely fixed and, and absolute so it's definitely in there mm. um, but it's actually you know any kind of um, uh, definition we, we give to it kind of lim limits its, its um, uh, boundlessness that's a way in one of the other sutra translations we have here the one by Tanahashi and Halifax they trend all the way through their translation they use boundlessness rather than emptiness so almost a sense of fullness or com complete completion in um, and that what we do in our with our minds is we tend to narrow down and so practice is all about helping us to drop the kinds of thinking and concepts that, that narrow our sense of, of the universe and ourselves down to a, to a kind of constricted um, position. One of the points that can be... Uh, can be uh, helpful to understand I really need a little book stand here for my little different things um, is it's not just a, a straight equals um, emptiness equals form form equals emptiness um, Albert Lowe who's a, is a Zen teacher um, in Canada and, and um, his teacher was Roshi Philip Kaplow um, talks about this um, he says, when it is said form is emptiness, we must not look upon the is as the is of identity. Form is not identical with emptiness. Form is form. Emptiness is emptiness. Even so, form is empty. We can use an, our analogy of a mirror. The mirror is its reflections. The reflections are the mirror. But the reflections are reflections. And the mirror is the mirror. To say that the mirror is reflections is to say that one cannot see the reflections without the mirror. One cannot see form without emptiness because seeing is emptiness. He goes into this prior. You think of prajna, it already has this, this quality of, of flowingness or uh, unfixedness in it. Just as it is in the nature of a mirror to reflect, the nature of knowing or seeing is to know, to see. The statement form is emptiness, emptiness is form, must not be looked on as symmetrical. Um, the, he says the reflection is dependent upon the mirror for its very existence. The mirror is dependent upon the reflection only in order to be able to function as a mirror. The reflection is totally dependent on something else, the mirror. The mirror is totally dependent on its own self-nature, its potential to reflect. There's that word potential. Yeah. So 
so it is said, emptiness is form. Another way of saying this is, is saying that knowing is dynamic. It has to know. If we are going to see, we always have to see something. Trees, birds, cars, roads, factories. Everything and everything will be reflected in the mirror without fail. Um, so, um, form here is only emptiness. Emptiness only form. And then it continues. Form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness no other than form. So, if something's important, <laughs> repeat it. <laughs> Um, so this is the, the central teaching of the sutra, sutra so you could say it's being repeated for emphasis um, uh, but Master Sheng Yen says that in the first time this is mentioned we're pre kind of presented with the concept presented with, it's presented with the teaching and in the second time we hear it it's like we're invited to contemplate these two truths and he says that it's very important that we don't get stuck in the first of these two. The, the form is emptiness part, but that we go on to the, to the second part, which is emptiness is no other than a form. So there's no experiencing of emptiness except in form. And um, again, get Xing Yen's actual words here, which can be very helpful, 57. So without form you can't perceive emptiness. <coughs> Sorry, what's that? So without form you can't perceive emptiness. That's right. Um, he says... Um, I'll just make sure I get the right passage here. Indeed, everything is emptiness is empty, but emptiness is wonderful existence. It is precisely because of our because our existence is illusory that we can experience enlightenment and help others to do the same. For this reason, emptiness is not other than form, is more important to understand than form is not other than emptiness, in that the workings of the five skandhas are the full display of emptiness. The five skandhas do have a conventional existence. Our bodies are illusory, but we will suffer if we do not care for them. Food is illusory, but we'll starve if we do not eat. Our activities are illusory, but only through activity can we help others. For this reason, there is action in the midst of emptiness, and because of this, we should remain active and positive and avoid nihilism. He then goes on to tell, tell this tale of, and this can happen, that an advanced practitioner who can experience deep levels of samadhi and deep, deep um, levels of the emptiness of the five skandhas um, can get stuck in that place and, and just kind of um, waste away because they can't see any reason for continuing to live, keep living. And that we can see this also in less and less um, advanced practitioners at times, um, a kind of apathy which is coming out of the misguided notion that, that form is emptiness, meaninglessness. Um, we talked a bit about that last week.
it's very important to move on from that that understanding that experience to and contemplate that emptiness is no other than form and he gives an, a practical example of this he says one of my former disciples never shaved his, shaved his beard because because he said if everything is empty what does it matter and and that was a rule for monks that you're supposed to be clean shaven but monks who were going into the mountains would often let their beards and, and, and facial hair grow. So Later, when he became abbot of his own temple, he decided to become clean-shaven. He did it, as he said, because his followers requested it of him. Also, he said that he had moved beyond the idea of form being only emptiness and accepted that emptiness is also form. Emptiness separate from a knob from phenomena is not a true Buddhist understanding. And this is very much a part of the, the, the bodhisattvic aspiration, is not just to enjoy the, the reality from the side of emptiness, but to return after having experienced that, that, that no-form side of things, to return to the world of form in order to help others, in order to teach and share that, that experience um, and and engage in all the difficulties of life and, and the struggles and and challenges of life. So that's the, the emptiness is no other than form part. Feeling, thought, and choice, consciousness itself are the same as this. So here we're getting the four other skandhas being mentioned: uh, feeling, tone, perception volitional mental formations and consciousness and it's been it's been kind of um, uh, shortened to get good rhythm in the chanting feeling thought and choice consciousness itself but the, f the thought is the is the perception choice is volition um, and form is basic to all of these and just for people's interest I have put up on these these sheets which which set out the, the sort of the constituents of the different um, Yes, thanks, Hanya, putting on the screen of the uh, the uh, mm. five skandhas. The, the the part on the far um, right of that is the continuation of the list that goes under mental formations. So, um, uh, nothing. You don't have people don't have to um, kind of memorise this or anything. It's just to give you a sense of of the the, the breadth of these these um, five categories. And just to remember that this is just one way to cut up the cake. You can cut it into five. You can cut it into, I think it's 75. Or we won't include all of these things. Um, and the point about their emptiness is that they're not some intrinsic truth about, about things, but a way of categorizing what exp human experience is or what being, a, being alive is all about. So, um, again, we've got the emphasis... Um, here with these three mention four mentioned again, and then it goes on. Dharmas here are empty, all of the primal void. Now in the original we have the the sh here Shariputra again, um, and we don't have it in our version, but it does bring some sense again of of we're reminded that that Avalokiteshvara is talking directly to Shariputra, and she's bringing him back to here again. Here, here in this in this room in this world, 
Um, and then dharmas here <laughs> are empty. Dharmas here means dharmas with a small d. In other words, phenomena, things, stuff. So you and and I and uh, our thing are, would be included. We're dharmas. And the table is a dharma. And the screen is a dharma. And the writing on the screen is dharmas. And and this, as I mentioned before, the Sarvastivadins saw the dharmas as being kind of like the building blocks of reality. This, the uh, um, it's been quite solid. Now all other primal void doesn't appear in the original. So our version again, probably for euphony, for for good chanting rhythm, it was it was added. All other primal void. Um, And again, we've been talking about how the void doesn't mean mere absence. Um, I was reading something, and I, then I lost the reference, but in, in, um, I was reading about uh, quantum physics, and there was a physicist who, say, who was saying, if you look in, at a vacuum, he said, it's seething with energy. You know, what we think of as being, being um, completely empty is actually already has something in it you know, um, emptiness is form um, or, or Master Huangbo great great Zen master he says um, all these phenomena are intrinsically void and yet this mind with which they are identical is no more, no mere nothingness. By this I mean that it does exist, but in a way too marvellous for us to comprehend. It is an existence which is no existence, a non-existence which is nevertheless existence. So this true void does in some way exist. So it's a fine, it's a fine line which is why it's, it's um, difficult to, for us to see and experience directly, and that's what the practice is all about, to bring us to being able to actually experience it for ourselves. We're just, we're just, in the sutra, we just have the, the, the finger pointing at the moon, so to speak. Yeah, I think I'll skip that one because we're running out of time here. Um, so going on to the next lines, none are born or die, nor are they stained or pure, nor do they wax or wane. So here we have um, three pairs, born or die, stained or pure, wax or wane. And um, these are three of the, the ways that we tend to create dualisms and break things up into this or that. Um, in another sutra, the Platform Sutra, there's a list of 36 ways we do this. Uh, but here we just have these three. Um, so he's saying, she's saying nothing is born, nothing really dies, um, nothing's stained, nothing's pure, and, and things don't really wax or wane, increase or decrease, in other words. Um, and you could say about these pairs... Um, permanence and impermanence, purity and defilement, gain and loss, um, that they're all 
um, relative and subjective and dependent on our point of view. So, um, for instance, we could say, this is an, an example that Tegnot Hein uses, we could say we see a rose wither and we say that the rose has died, but that same withered rose gets thrown on a compost heap and gets turned into compost, which then feeds another flower or a tree or a grass. And so has it really died? Hasn't it just changed forms? Um, so that's an example of the sort of illusory nature of, of birth and death. Um, we don't see the whole story and therefore we say it, it has died. But um, from the point of view of, of the totality, from, from fullness or from emptiness, whichever way you describe it, there, there isn't any birth and death. And we could, could treat the other two in the same way. So, um, nor, nor are they stained or pure. Also, dependent on your point of view, whether something is stained or pure. Who can you say? How can you say anything in the universe is, is impure? It's the, if it's the universe, um, you could you could use the example of a, of say a rotting um, piece of fruit. That for us, that we could say it's 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 rotten. It's impure. But if, if, if an ant was to come along or a fly, it would be food. It would be bound, you know, very um, uh, bounty, I would see it as. Um, and the same with, with gain and loss. You know, we have a very narrow view of things, and so um, we feel like we've gained something. But elsewhere, there may be, there may be loss happening, I think, Big one for us in, our, in the 21st century is our collective attachment to economy that keeps on growing, has to keep on growing, just to keep going. And yet, um, of course, there's a there's lost the bias, the biodiversity that is is goes right along with that that um, so-called gain. So we tend to favour gains that affect us and, and ignore the, the losses to, to others. And you can probably think of lots of other examples of that. Um, I'll just keep going though because I don't we can discuss that at the end I think when we when we break up into our discussion groups. So um, we're on to the last part and um, it is so in emptiness no form, no feeling, thought or choice, nor is there consciousness. So we're being hammered again <laughs> about these five skandhas being empty. And um, it's, an, it's a repetition for emphasis and it's an invitation to contemplate these, these five skandhas again. And so what I thought we'd do just to finish up um, the session before we... Before we, we um, do a little bit of uh, discussion is just with us with a little contemplation on these these five. So um, we'll just finish if if everybody's willing to just um, sit up straight, get your feet on the floor, knees lower than the hips if you can in these awful chairs. <laughs> Not so good for sitting. And then just. Um, for this, it's a contemplation, so it's a little different from Zazen, where it's conceptual. 
but we're just going to explore this, this, um, these five skandhas a little bit. So eyes closed is, is, um, will work here. And um, this is different from what we do when we sit, but it's related in that we are, we're paying attention, we're ta paying attention to the body, starting off with the body anyway. So the first of these, these five is form or rupa. And most immediately, uh, rupa means our own body, including our five senses, so our hearing, seeing, tasting, smelling, touching. And then also what's known as the sixth sense in Buddhism, our, you could say our nervous system, our, um, our, our, our body-mind. can't really separate these two. So just practice a little bit now mindfulness of the body. Just paying attention to each part of the body, starting with the scalp. So just bringing your awareness to the scalp for a moment and then just letting that area soften, relaxing as you go from one place to another without forcing it, just bringing your awareness to the face, to the neck, front and back, to the throat the chest, the spine stretching up, the arms, the, the seat where it comes in contact with the, with the chair, the, the legs, the feet on the floor. And Thich Nhat Hanh suggests we imagine the body as a river with each cell being a drop of water in that river flowing, changing, dying, being reborn. It's said that we have a complete turnover of cells in our body every seven years. So after seven years we're a completely new person. And in each cell, there's our complete DNA. So right there in each cell, we can, we can see our parents and our great-grandparents and our great-grandparents, all our ancestors, all other living beings too. When we, as we develop as an embryo, we go through the different stages of, of uh, evolution, of um, living beings. So all of this is present in our body. So just contemplating the fact that all of life is here in our breathing in and our breathing out. The so-called inside of our body being dependent on the so-called outside of our body. All the air we ever breathed is here. All the food we ever ate. And... All the, all the waste we ever produced is here. And with that slightly unpleasant thought, perhaps 
we can move into the next one, the vedana, the, the feeling tone. To be aware of, of feelings we're experiencing in the body. The painful ones, pleasant ones, neutral ones. Just being aware of the feeling tone as we scan the body. To notice how feelings flow and change as we bring awareness to them. Can we stay with the feelings without jumping into aversion or clinging or ignoring? We might start to see how our experience of things as pleasant or unpleasant can be shaped by our perceptions, our consciousness. be shaped by where we hold tension in the body, how we see ourselves, how we judge our experience. Which leads us into perceptions or samja, all the, the ways in which we notice and name, conceptualize. How we encounter things from a place of being the perceiver. That shapes how we perceive and what we perceive. So just broadening out now and, and experiencing sights and sounds, tastes, smells, the tactile world, judgments that arise out of that, memories. And just remembering that perceptions can be mistaken. They can be distorted. They can be pretty much always incomplete and sometimes outright erroneous. So can we just see our perceptions as perceptions? To ask ourselves perhaps, am I sure? And then moving on to mental formations, the samskaras. Habits of mind we have. Attitudes we may bring to this room right now different kinds of mind states. Could be boredom we're experiencing or anxiety, um, interest, concentration, restlessness, annoyance, impatience. The list goes on and on and on. Just to notice whatever is, is coloring the mind this time. And seeing that all of these these seeds, these habits, are are there in our in our storehouse consciousness, waiting to be activated, or sinking back down, like seeds that can be uh, 
nourished or starved off, depending on their um, whether they are beneficial or are not beneficial. So now just to be aware of the space of the mind, the, the space in which all of this occurs. Things arising, having a certain life, and dying away. And then just slowly from this place, just um, opening our eyes again, and coming back into the, the room at large, and uh, it's, re it's almost 12, so I don't know how long people want to keep going. I'll just have a little bit of discussion, questions. Um, but this is the time when um, we plan to, to break into two groups at least, with three of you online, and, and then we'll, we'll um, turn off the recorder here and have a little bit of discussion. Do you want to unmute folks, Hanya, before you go? Uh, yeah, you guys will have to unmute yourselves, but thank you, Sensei. That was that was wonderful. So we'll um sorry I had to rush it a, rush it a bit at the end. We could take in longer on the contemplation, but uh, we zipped through the five scriptures <laughs> quite quickly. <laughs> I'll share the last screen too, that that at uh, the last chat. Yeah, I didn't really get to talk about that, so I wanted to say it, save it for next time if we talk more okay. about consciousness. Yeah, yep. different stages of consciousness. Okay, well, lovely to see you again, Emily. Lovely to attend the teaching. Thank you very much. Good experience. Great, and bye-bye, Irene. Irene's you still... You might need to unmute yourself, Irene. Yeah. Maybe she's not hearing us right now. No, nope. Irene's there. Hi, Irene. I've lost my sound. <laughs> oh, okay. You okay, well, we're saying, we're saying goodbye from here. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay. Irene's lost her sound, but she, we can still hear her. Irene, can you hear me? Okay. Irene? Um, <laughs> I've somehow got. Uh, sorry about this. This is the, the difficulty. I think we're. Yeah, we've done now. We're done. Yep. You can still hear it from the Okay. Okay. And we're going to turn off. We'll turn oh. off the recorder.